2: Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live, and we're taking a few moments out of your podcast just to ask you to uh, think about Making a donation to continue allowing us to produce where we live and uh, bring it to you every day. Uh, The number to donate is 1 800 584 2788, or you can go online to slash donate. Think about the content that you hear on this station and specifically on this program, where each day we work hard to keep you connected to your community, to the issues that matter most, to the people in your backyard. If that is something that you value, we hope you will support it today. It's quick. It's easy, and it's secure, and it's so appreciated by us. 1-800-584-2788 or online at wnpr.org, and thank you. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on February 5th, 2019.
3: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Local governments pass many laws, and some of them are meant to keep the public safe. But have you thought about the consequences behind the no-loitering signs you see in your town or city? Today, we learn how municipalities in Connecticut handle those who loiter or stand around in public spaces with no apparent purpose. Is it a crime? And are ordinances that are meant to prevent loitering effective? Or are they criminalizing the most vulnerable in our communities? Coming up, we'll hear how the city of Middletown has dealt with the issue on its popular Main Street. And later, we'll hear from a homeless couple in New Haven about their experiences. You can join us, too. Does your city or town have a loitering ordinance? Do you think its impact has been positive? find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome our first guest from NPR studios in New York City, Alison Frankel. She's one of the authors of a 2016 study from Yale Law School's Lowenstein International Human Rights Clinic that looked into how local ordinances criminalize homelessness. Alison is now counsel at the Center for Appellate Litigation in New York City. Allison, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So starting off with a little bit of history, when we think about loitering, when did it start to be seen as a criminal offense?
4: So these loitering laws are actually a relic from back in the day before the founding of our country. America brought these ordinances over from Great Britain, where they had a series of laws that effectively just circumscribed poverty. Um, These laws were explicitly targeted at the poor, at the undesirables. And America has been applying these laws here uh, since our founding. And as with so many laws in our country, they've really grafted on to race as well as poverty. And they've aimed to keep those that our society has has othered and has deemed unworthy away from our streets. So I think it's uh, incredibly important in this conversation when people now talk about the importance of of public safety and of beautifying our cities to remember uh, the insidious history that these laws came from.
3: When we think about criminal behavior, often it's tied to a specific action. But uh, in the study that uh, Yale Law School did, um, the clinic that you were a part of, uh, you look at how uh, loitering can be tied to someone's socioeconomic status, not necessarily an action uh, that they're taking, but just actually existing in a public space can be an issue.
4: Precisely. These laws are incredibly vague. For instance, New Britain defines loitering as remaining idle in essentially one location, and it includes spending time idly, loafing, or walking about aimlessly. And shall include the colloquial expression, hanging around. <laughs> That's a direct quote from the ordinance. <laughs> There's no way to know whether you're violating that law. So people that we spoke to in New Britain and in cities with similar ordinances throughout the state never knew whether their conduct from standing outside waiting for a public library to open, standing outside a coffee shop in hopes of being able to get something to drink would lead to a citation. Uh, and one of the problems with laws that are so vague the reason some have been struck down uh, is both that nobody knows when their conduct violates the law and also that they're disproportionately and arbitrarily enforced. Uh, I'm sure most people listening to this show have stood on their phone outside of a building, hung around killing some time before a meeting, uh, but only certain people we found are actually cited under these ordinances, and they're disproportionately people who appear poor, people who appear homeless, and people of color.
3: Uh, You mentioned uh, court decisions. So the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, they had a decision back in the 70s that talked about uh, what you just described, where these laws can be too vague and arbitrary?
4: Exactly. So in a Supreme Court case from the 70s called Papa Cristo, the Supreme Court struck down a vagrancy law saying that nobody could tell when their conduct uh, violated this ordinance. And that was really exciting. Um, But states... Have found ways, um, and cities have found ways to get around these laws. So they started trying to define behavior a little bit more specifically. Um, Some states moved to criminalizing specific activities. So you'll see ordinances prohibiting sleeping on park benches, uh, prohibiting bathing in public. Uh, Park curfews, things like that are kind of a way to still target this activity while getting around that court case. Uh, But others like New Britain and Hartford and and the many cities we profile here um, are still really ripe for constitutional challenge because they are just simply too vague to figure out when your conduct violates the law. There's just no way to fairly enforce what it means to hang around.
3: I'm speaking with Alison Frankel, she's joining us from NPR studios in New York City. She's one of the authors of a 2016 study from Yale Law School's Lowenstein International Human Rights Clinic, uh, looking at how uh, specific local ordinances, uh, today we're honing in on loitering, can actually criminalize the most vulnerable, especially the homeless in communities. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. You mentioned uh, New Britain. When did New Britain's loitering law go into effect and the idea that uh, because it's so vague it could be challenged in the court of law. There's precedence for that.
4: There is. Yes. So this um, the tw- the 1970s Supreme Court case that we discussed serves as precedent. Um, there's more recent cases uh, from the 90s, for instance, um, in Chicago v. Morales, the Supreme Court uh, struck down a loitering agent. Uh, action in um, Chicago um, because, again, it prohibited people from gathering in groups and nobody had fair notice of when their conduct violated the law. Uh, New Britain's ordinance has been on the books for for a while. Um And New Britain is actually still passing laws that criminalize homelessness. So actually, just a couple of years ago, they passed a new aggressive panhandling ban, um, even though numerous people, um, homeless activists, social services providers, um, members of our clinic team uh, went to testify to discuss how these laws are incredibly harmful to the most vulnerable members of our society, not to mention uh, unconstitutional. So these laws are still being passed Um, despite the fact that they violate U.S. state and international law and really just push down the most vulnerable residents among us. Allison,
3: uh, in the study, uh, you and others uh, talk to police officers. So those are the uh, people that are the ones that are handing out a citation or summons. Uh, What is their take on ordinances that uh, look at loitering, panhandling? Um, Are they effective from the police perspective?
4: Thank you for that question. So one thing that was uh, really fascinating about our study is so many of the people that we spoke with recognized the futility of criminalizing homelessness and poverty. One officer we spoke to said, you know, it's the definition of insanity, thinking that we can incarcerate ourselves out of this problem. We talked to officers who know the homeless people in their city parks and plaza. They see them technically violating these ordinances every day. They'll issue them a $90 fine. Uh, The person who can't afford shelter cannot pay a $90 fine. They end up getting perhaps a warrant issued for their arrest because they don't pay the fine and they can't go to court um, or don't go to court to tell the court that they can't pay. And then a warrant can be issued for their arrest, and they can spend nights in jail, and the cycle just keeps continuing. And then they have possibly um, an arrest or even a conviction on their record. Uh, They're even... It's even harder for them to get back on their feet to find housing and to find a job. And the police officers see this. They, Most of them, you know, didn't go into the police force to tell the homeless man on the street to get up and move. Um, and I think there's a little bit of a lack of creativity um, in a lot of cities here in realizing, you know, um, we can't incarcerate. We can't arrest. We can't fine ourselves out of this problem. We have to look at the root, which is housing. We need more housing for people. We don't need more handcuffs for these folks. Uh, your
3: report also argues, uh, uh, besides uh, thinking about um, uh, denying uh, people access to public spaces uh, and if they end up uh, this ripple effect, as you mentioned, where uh, they're not able to show up in court, then they get a, a, a warrant for their arrest. That arrest uh, follows them. It makes it harder to find a job or housing. Uh, but in the report, you argue that this, these kinds of ordinances violate uh, people's uh, constitutional civil rights. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Allison?
4: Sure. So there's numerous ways in which these violate our civil rights. Um, First and foremost, these laws constitute cruel and inhumane treatment um, and punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment. You simply cannot criminalize necessary life-sustaining behavior. Uh, They also violate other constitutional rights. For instance, panhandling ordinances have been struck down, um, particularly recently, because they prescribe people's speech um, just because they're poor, right? Someone who's poor uh, and holding up a sign can get cited under a panhandling ordinances, but we have signs asking for things all the time at bake sales and other things. These laws also circumscribe your freedom of movement um, by prohibiting people from existing in public spaces, uh, and they can violate people's rights to privacy and personal property. We talked to people in cities across Connecticut who are living in tent encampments, and they would come home one day and see that their tents had been slashed and that their few precious belongings had been taken when the police raided um, a tent encampment that violated a camping ordinance. Um, and just because they didn't have brick walls governing their house, instead it was a cloth tent, that, pro- that property got no protection and was entitled to um, no privacy in these police officers' views. Uh, so these laws pose very serious questions for people's civil rights. Uh, We know in Connecticut
3: there's poverty everywhere, not just in our cities, but also in the suburbs. Uh, When uh, you studied these municipalities in this report back in 2016, uh, what were the ordinances? uh, What did they look like in uh, suburban areas?
4: Absolutely. This issue is not just an issue for our cities, it impacts suburbs, towns, every place in Connecticut. Uh, So we looked at uh, towns and suburbs and cities across the state. And they all had these laws, um, including the suburbs. So, for instance, Glastonbury prohibits loitering. It has a park curfew. It has a camping ordinance. Uh, Trumbull also bans loitering, panhandling, park curfews, camping, South Windsor, um, similarly. Uh, So especially with the increase, as you mentioned, of visible poverty in all of our communities, the city and the suburbs, Uh, All our towns, large and small, need to really be thinking about how we treat our most vulnerable residents. Are we enforcing and even passing new laws that push them away that try to make them someone else's problem? Or are we lending them a hand and making sure our communities are safe for all of our residents, not just the wealthy?
3: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, joining us from NPR studios in New York City, Allison Frankel, one of the authors of a 2016 study from Yale Law School's Lowenstein International Human Rights Clinic that looked into how local ordinances can criminalize homelessness. Now, there's another side to whether loitering ordinances are making an impact. Local businesses don't want people congregating in front of their establishments for a number of reasons. So after the break, we're going to check in on this debate in the city of Middletown. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
2: Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're the producers of Where We Live. Thanks for joining us today and listening to Where We Live, the podcast. It does take a lot of work, as Lydia and I both know, to put together a show like this with so many different voices and, and coming to you be a part of supporting that. The number to call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org donate. We are so happy to have you listening to this podcast. We found that oftentimes people don't even realize that it exists. They just think that we broadcast between 9 and 10 a.m. and 7 and 8 p.m., but the reality is that you can go online and listen at any time of day at your convenience. It's there for you, and we hope that you'll support it as well. Again, that number 1-800-584-2788, one 584 2788 Go online to wnpr.org. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure, and thank you so much in advance. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on February 5th, 2019.
3: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall We've been talking with Allison Frankel, one of the authors of a 2016 study from Yale Law School's Lowenstein International Human Rights Clinic that looked into how local ordinances that target loitering can actually impact the most vulnerable in our communities. Now, one of the municipalities, uh, there were 38 that they studied all together, but one of the municipalities that Allison and her team studied was the city of Middletown. Uh, I lived there for years, and I know uh, there's been tension over loitering laws on its Main Street between advocates for the homeless and city businesses. We wanted to know how are local officials and residents balancing their concerns with an individual's rights to be in a public space? So joining our conversation now is Lydia Brewster. She's Assistant Director for Community Services for St. Vincent de Paul in Middletown. And I understand, Lydia, that you
5: um, help uh, coordinate and run the Soup Kitchen there on Main Street. I do. Uh, The Soup Kitchen is one of my main responsibilities there. And uh, the Soup Kitchen is uh, one of the targets that often comes up in any conversations about loitering. Uh, it's something that has arisen from time to time in the now many years that I've been working in the north end of Middletown, which is the lowest income census tract in the city. And it, it kind of ebbs and flows, I think, the concerns about loitering based upon... Uh, I think the business community that often finds the presence and the visible presence of of people who are of low income uh, a, a deterrent to business, or at least they, they believe so. So for uh,
3: residents, I mean, many residents have uh, been to Middletown. Middletown's known yes. for its uh, very uh, engaging uh, Main Street, lots of uh, local shops and restaurants. Yes. So as you get uh, further to the Aragony Bridge side of mm-hmm. Main Street, that's considered the north end. So Saint Vincent de Paul sits uh, closer to that side of town. So when you say that um, you're often the target because uh, your patrons who are there uh, looking to find a good meal, they stand around on the street, and so yes. the other businesses are they feeling intimidated? Are they worried
5: if their customers aren't going to come into their stores because of the, the patrons of the soup kitchen? Well, I think the the north end of Middletown that you described um, towards the Aragone Bridge has undergone some really wonderful uh, developmental changes in the last particularly 10 years, 10 or 15 years. We've seen some uh, economic development that has improved the neighborhood. We've seen some housing development that have raised the incomes on some of those streets that were had particularly low incomes. But with that also comes um, concern about that visible presence of people standing outside of a soup kitchen. Uh, I should say that there are behavioral issues that take place in front of St. Vincent de Paul. Um, a few people will often create some problems And we work very hard to encourage our guests to be good neighbors and to behave responsibly both within the soup kitchen and on the street. Um, But sometimes that doesn't work. But I should say that as we look at Middletown that has a very strong restaurant economy, it's always struck me that the men and women that are standing outside of the soup kitchen waiting for lunch perhaps enjoying a nice day, perhaps socializing and having a good time. Why are they different than if you or I, Lucy, went out to dinner with four or five of our friends at one of the beautiful restaurants in Middletown and stood outside and talked about what a great time we had had, laughing and joking and having a good time. That would be emblematic of, of a vibrant city. But if that happens in front of a soup kitchen, That's emblematic of a city that's deteriorating, um, which is not true. Uh, We are going to be moving our our St. Vincent de Paul one block away, so we will not be Right right on Main Street anymore, but we'll still be near Main Street. Now, why are you moving? Because we have the opportunity to relocate to a site that will be much better suited to our needs. I
3: wanted to get uh, some perspective from the business community. Joining us uh, on the phone now is Larry McHugh. He's president of the Middlesex County Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Their office also sits on Main Street in Middletown. Larry, welcome to our show.
6: Thank you very much. Uh,
3: So as we uh, heard from Lydia, uh, we know for years uh, there's been uh, trying to find some kind of way to alleviate uh, tensions that some business owners may feel when uh, certain uh, individuals are congregating on the sidewalk, but also they have a right to be there. So I'm curious, Larry, um, how the business community has worked with St. Vincent de Paul and uh, the the mayor's office in trying to figure out some kind of way uh, that it's not uh, full of tension and that people have a place to go?
6: Well, I I think our uh, major problem is uh, not so much the people uh, in front of different uh, facilities and hanging out, uh, whether it would be there or across the street at the park or uh, down at Spear Park. Uh, It is what happens in some cases there, drinking uh, and uh, that assortment of problems that run with that. Uh, And the main thing that we get complaints on, uh, even up near uh, St. Vincent's, is the, uh, and they, they have done a good job up there trying to move people and to also clean up afterwards But would be the uh, nips and other stuff that's left on the streets and, or, and more so towards Spear Park, uh, which is at the other end of town. And, uh, you know, we feel that uh, everyone says it's the front porch of people that live there and they should have the opportunity to be on uh, Main Street. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. But I do disagree with the part of uh people that are there and then leaving uh, a mess uh after uh they leave. Uh the same way I disagree with people when I'm at the Y working out, leaving their towels out and not putting their towels away. I think that's part of, you know, people responsibilities
3: so Larry if I'm understanding correctly uh, is this are these isolated incidents where people are leaving uh, you know garbage behind so this is not something that business owners are contacting you about or the police about if they see people standing around on Main Street
6: the only time people contact us if there is problems arising where threatening uh, remarks are made and stuff like that uh, then we we might get phone calls in here we ask people to contact us Uh, And then we would contact the police instead of having numerous people calling the police at at all times. so, you know, it's the same thing uh, if it goes to panhandling. Uh, if somebody, ha- everyone has the right to ask, uh, it's the threatening situation that once you say no, that the people don't continue to uh, harass people asking for money or whatever it might be. Uh, at one time, uh, we did pass out cards to everybody, uh, and St. Vincent's was part of that. Uh, also, the Salvation Army and Red Cross, that these people would have an opportunity to get services, uh from different organizations i think middletown by and large is a very inclusive community and really tries to work with both the homeless uh those people that need help Uh, And and they're out there trying to work with them at all times.
3: Uh, Uh, Larry, I wanted to bring back our guest uh, to the conversation. uh, Joining us from NPR Studios in New York City is Allison Frankel. Um, Allison, again, uh, you and others at Yale Law School uh, studied 38 municipalities and how certain ordinances are impacting uh, the vulnerable. Uh, You also studied Middletown. Can you talk a little bit about how their loitering ordinances uh, may be different from uh, what you talked about earlier with New Britain and uh, what kind of, um, I guess, uh, the way that uh, the community leaders are working together to address this.
4: Sure, um, and I just want to say um, thank you to the other uh, guests on here for for raising all of these issues. Um, I think it's incredibly important, um, as everyone seems to be doing, to work to make our cities uh, safe and habitable places for everyone, uh, which includes our homeless and vulnerable residents um, and ensuring they're not being treated differently. Uh, So Middletown has a number of ordinances on the books that purely criminalize homelessness, not just this other uh, case-specific behavior that's been talked about here. Uh, There's a loitering ordinance, an aggressive panhandling law, a park curfew, a camping law, public consumption of alcohol. Uh, The loitering law is is fairly similar to New Britain's. I think it has a lot of similar problems. Um, It prohibits sitting, standing, lying, pacing, or otherwise remaining in essentially the same place and includes the colloquial expression hanging around. Um, So it still has that very vague language there. Um, And the panhandling law, as well, uh, while it only prohibits aggressive panhandling as opposed to all panhandling,, uh, it's really problematic because the things that it criminalizes are not just, you know, assaulting someone or robbing someone. things that we would think of are problematic when asking for money, right? It's continuing to ask. Um, That's something that people do all the time, whether it's trying to get you to to buy something or to support a specific cause um, using abusive or profane language, something that's not illegal uh, for a resident to do. But suddenly when they're poor and asking for money, we criminalize that. Uh, so I think what everyone's saying about, you know, being able uh, to handle specific situations where someone might actually be posing a public safety threat is absolutely important. Uh, but we have laws on the books for that, right? We can call in the police if someone's assaulting someone, if something someone's robbing someone. But there's no reason that Middletown needs these laws that we discussed that just criminalize homelessness and poverty on the books uh, to pursue those goals.
3: Allison, I wanted to bring into the conversation, actually, the mayor of Middletown is on the phone, uh, Dan Drew. Uh, Mayor Drew welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having me. It's good to
1: be with you. I'm sure you
3: heard our guest from New York, Allison Frankel, who studied uh, municipalities uh, and how these ordinances can impact uh, uh, vulnerable members of the community. Uh, We asked about loitering and she mentioned Middletown actually has some strict laws on panhandling. I'm wondering if you can respond to what Allison uh, said as well as uh, do you think the city is doing enough to help the most vulnerable instead of penalizing them?
1: yeah the city really works hard uh to ensure that everyone has a, a good and dignified life. um I heard Lydia earlier mentioning that St Vincent's is going to be moving a block over the building that they're moving to is actually a city building and we're moving them in at uh at no cost to the city excuse me no cost uh uh to the organization We're turning over the building to them for for a long time ownership um it, Larry mentioned a minute ago, Spear Park, which is on the south end of Main Street, where we used to have a tremendous number of problems. Um, you, rather than bringing the police in and really getting aggressive in that area, uh, we made some some physical changes to the park because there were areas that uh, shielded people uh, from Main Street where people were, were going in to do drugs and, and engage in some other activity, and we found that when we took uh, the visual obstructions out, the park just automatically kind of Uh, got better. Now, people use it. People go there, but we don't have the problems there that we used to. So we we try to take that approach. And, um, you know, especially when it comes to loitering ordinances, uh, loitering is a very ambiguous concept. It's extraordinarily difficult to enforce, and it's really hard to even know what it is. Um, It's one of those things that sometimes you know it if you see it, but not necessarily. And Really the the standard that we go by is if someone is obstructing the the, the right of passage for other people, and even then um, our officers, if there's a blockage, will only ask people to move on and, and generally we only really get um, we really only get uh to the point where we're where we're enforcing the law from a, a police standpoint if we start to run into other problems like drugs or verbal harassment uh, or or other issues but then as as uh, as I think, as Allison just said, uh, the issue there is a separate statutory violation, not necessarily the issue of loitering.
3: Uh, I'm wondering, uh, Mayor Drew, since you mentioned that uh, you said uh, we're moving uh, the soup kitchen, um, is this a way to strike a compromise for uh, Main Street? Uh, the like you mentioned, the the visibility of the of the restaurants and um, trying to make customers and
1: business leaders happy. Well, this uh, this really came about primarily because St. Vincent's had uh, outused the space that it has on Main Street. They have a much larger demand for their service uh, than is available there. And it's not just the soup kitchen. They do a lot of social service provision, casework. They need offices so that they can meet with clients on a one-on-one basis. And there are a number of services up in that area that still also exist on Main Street. Uh, so this is, a, you know, a more of a holistic approach that's going to do a lot uh, for the community writ large and a lot for St. Vincent's.
3: And before you go, uh, Mayor Drew, do you uh, think that any of your ordinances should be revised? Uh, we mentioned uh, loitering, uh, you know, again, blocking uh, specific traffic or an entrance, uh, but as we heard from our guest, uh, these ordinances um, aren't effective. Do you think that uh, the city should take another look?
1: Maybe. I think maybe maybe for some of them. I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in Allison's report. I'm going to read it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and uh that's something i think to consider uh, you know we always try to to get better and when when there's more information we always try to consider that information um what we want is the ability to ensure that everyone uh has a, a, a right to enjoy the public uh, public spaces and to ensure that uh nobody is um uh, put out of those spaces for for uh, being on the lower end of the income scale or, or, or having a less fortunate situation.
3: And we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Mayor Dan Drew from Middletown, thank you. Also to Lydia Brewster, Assistant Director for Community Services for St. Vincent de Paul in Middletown, and Larry McHugh, President of the Middlesex Chamber of Commerce. I'm Lucy Nopithanch. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few minutes. We're going to hear from a homeless couple that lives in New Haven. But first, it's our uh, midwinter uh, pledge drive. If you appreciate the conversations you hear on where We Live and WMPR, Please support us. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.
2: You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It was originally recorded on February 5th, 2019.
3: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today on Where We Live, we've been talking about how local ordinances targeting loitering and panhandling have far-reaching consequences for the most vulnerable. Uh, Two people who have firsthand experience with this are joining us now from WMPR's New Haven studio at Gateway Community College. I want to welcome to the show uh, Sade and Donnie, who uh, would feel comfortable just using their first names. Uh, Sade and Donnie, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, Sade, I'll start with you. Uh, You and Donnie are both members of the Housing Not Jails Initiative of the Connecticut Bail Fund, and as I uh, told our listeners, uh, both of you live in New Haven, and you are both homeless. So, Sade, uh, tell me a little bit about your experience uh, being homeless in New Haven. Uh, Where are you you living now?
0: Right now, we're at a warming center um, because there's really nowhere else to go. It's too cold. Everywhere else. And how long have you been homeless?
3: Um, I've been homeless basically since I was 18. Mm. And Donnie, who's with you, uh, you're both uh, your fiancés. So how did you meet? Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead and tell them how we met.
7: (laughs) I met her last year at the warming center that we're at now.
3: Uh, so, a little bit about uh, the show. We've been focusing on how specific laws uh, in uh, cities like New Haven uh, target the most vulnerable. Uh, since Sade, uh, you've been homeless since you were 18. Can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the uh, ways that you've uh, felt uh, targeted because you have no place to go during the day? What kind of activity, um, you know, either staying at the green or standing uh, on a, a, a particular street, um, have you had? people talk to you about moving along sometimes yeah but
0: i don't stand still too much to avoid that so um it's not really a bigger problem for me people are not really allowed to fall asleep on the green like we have nowhere to go staying at the warming center we don't get in they don't open the door until 10 for us to get in And then we probably don't lay down and actually settle down to go to sleep until 12 or 1. And then they wake us up at 5 o'clock in the morning just to put us out at 6. So, you know, we're really not getting any sleep. So we're tired and we're exhausted. And, you know, sometimes we can't help it if we fall asleep right where we're at. Um, Some of us sit in Starbucks during the day. We fall asleep in there. They'll wake us up. If we keep falling asleep, they'll put us out. Um, the library is the same way you can't sleep in there they'll put you out on the green it's if they catch you sleeping they'll the police will wake you up and give you and automatically assume that you're intoxicated so they'll give you a choice of either going to jail or going to the hospital it's it's sick thing. Mm.
3: Uh, Donnie, who's with you? Uh, understand again. Both of you are members of this Housing Not Jails initiative as part of the Connecticut Bail Fund. Um, as members, uh, you are in support of uh, the City of New Haven passing a homeless person's bill of rights. So, tell me, uh, Donnie, uh, what you hope to accomplish if this bill of rights were passed? How would that change uh, your circumstances?
7: It would change a lot for not just me and, and Shadé, but for the community. So. Where we'll be able to vote we'll be able to use the ba- more bathrooms um, be able to sit on the green, be able to sit in a library on cold days or when there's raining or the weather's bad we can sit inside um, It would mean a lot for me to get it passed for everybody to have the equal rights because it's not fair not to have everybody not to have equal rights for everybody.
3: Uh, One of our guests who's with us uh, from New York City at NPR Studios is Allison Frankel. Uh, We're hearing uh, some uh, firsthand experiences from uh, two uh, Connecticut residents, uh, Donnie and Sade. They're hoping that a homeless person's Bill of Rights gives them uh, the chance to be able to uh, sit in a public space and not uh, be uh, targeted um, because of the fact that they have nowhere else to go. Allison, what's your take on these Bill of Rights? Uh, Will they help people like Donnie and Sade?
4: Thank you. I think these are a really exciting development. Uh, So this trend started back in around 2012. Rhode Island uh, became the first state in the mainland to pass um, this new type of document called a Homeless Persons Bill of Rights, which makes clear that just because you lack a house does not mean you lack basic human rights. Um, and this has started something of a trend. Connecticut as a state passed a Homeless Person's Bill of Rights in 2013. Um, and it was a really great start. But part of the reason for this movement around a local Homeless Person's Bill of Rights in New Haven uh, is because the state's Bill of Rights um, is a fairly short document. The local one provides a lot more detail and really addresses head on this issue of the criminalization of homelessness and makes clear that just because you don't have a place to be be during the day doesn't mean that you don't exist. You have to be somewhere. And it makes clear that you cannot be targeted by the police for sitting, standing, laying, using the bathroom, things that are just basic human necessities. Um, So I'm really hopeful that the Board of Alders in New Haven will pass this Bill of Rights um, and concretize and codify the rights of all of our residents, including those that aren't housed.
3: Uh, You mentioned since Connecticut has a statewide
4: Homeless Persons Bill of Rights, uh, what impact has that had in other municipalities? Uh, You know, I think the impact is really still to be seen. One problem is lack of public awareness. Uh, There's been some amazing grassroots advocacy of people holding up the homeless person's bill of rights when the police enforce them saying, no, no, I have rights too. You can't do this. Uh, But I still think we have a lot to do of getting the word out that this exists, um, that it has been passed into law, um, of passing it out and of letting police officers and municipalities know that this is there and encourage them to use that as a floor to build off of um, and to pass other local homeless persons bill of rights that are more geared towards the issues in their specific areas um, and to really consider the impact of any laws that they have passed or are considering passing um, in light of this state homeless persons bill of rights. Uh, Donnie, I
3: wanted to go back to you at uh, WMPR's New Haven studio. Um, can you give us some examples of when you have had interactions with the police uh, because you've been on the New Haven green and when what happened?
7: Yeah, I had gotten a shopping cart, a ticket for a shopping cart on the green. They gave me uh, What happened was the incident was there was a, a fight. The cops couldn't figure out what happened or who it was involved. But because we had a shopping cart there on the green, and the cops did not want us to have no carts or nothing on the green. He wrote me a ticket stating a motor vehicle on the sidewalk. I'm still pending in court about this ticket. And then I'm quest- I am quest—I questioned the lieutenant supervisor for New Haven PD about the citation. And she said that, that there's not a cop citation to local ordinance.
3: So uh, tell me, so you still have to show up for court for that. You have a a job. So how will that impact you in terms of the scheduling of that hearing?
7: I lose work. I'm going to lose work for the day just to go to court.
3: Uh, Allison, I wanted to go back to you because we got a comment from a, a public defender in Connecticut uh, who says that when we, when we talk about loitering, uh, loitering enforcement also affects kids, especially kids of color. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the, the people again that um, um, are often uh, where people are calling the police or complaining about certain individuals
4: who are in a particular place? Absolutely. It's a huge problem in the enforcement of these laws. I mean, as we've been saying, they're incredibly vague. Almost all of us hang about or spend our time idly uh, you know, going to Yale Law School and being a white woman law student and now attorney. I did this all the time and I've never received a loitering citation. And I see young kids of color going through the courthouse time and time again for the same behavior, but because their skin It has a different amount of pigment in it because their clothes might be different for those who are homeless or appear homeless because they have other bags with them uh, that shows a status. The cops target them and not other people. Um, And this is a huge problem and we all need to be paying attention to it because it not only violates our constitutional rights, it violates our basic human rights and it's simply inhumane and intolerable.
3: Um, Sade, I wanted to go back to you. Uh, You mentioned that often you spend uh, time in in a warming center. Uh, We hear often from policymakers in Connecticut that uh, the state's making strides with ending homelessness, that there are places for people to go. Has that been your experience? Uh, Where are the gaps that still exist in our state? There's
0: no walk-in shelters for women, but there are two for men, one that is year-round and one that is seasonal. But there's
3: none, period, for women. So that would be a place where the the state uh, could help more in terms of uh, having a place for you to go.
0: Exactly. Like for me to get a bed in the shelter, I have to call 211, do a can assessment at Columbus House, get put on the waiting list, and then wait for a phone call stating that I have a bed
3: available. And uh, we just have a couple of minutes left, uh, Sade and Donnie. Uh, tell us what your status is now. Are you close to finding um, a permanent home?
0: So, we received our housing voucher a few weeks ago, and we are currently looking for an apartment. Um, we have to, there are several requirements for this apartment because um, of certain obstacles that we have to overcome. Um, we have to work with a private landlord because we both have backgrounds. Um, we have Oreo, which we don't have all the this is your paperwork service dog. We need to. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have all the paperwork to show that he's an actual service dog, because we can't afford the tags and the vest and the certificates and the ID. We can't afford all that. So um, right now, all we have is registration for him um, with a tracking ID number and he's not registered through the city of new haven which is another issue so um and then also um are the utilities have to be included and this whatever landlord we deal with has to be pet friendly mm-hmm. so well, we you know, hope those are some obstacles we have to overcome just to find an apartment, mm-hmm. which makes it harder to find an apartment. Yeah.
3: Well, we hope that you're successful in finding a place, uh, both of you as well as your dog, Oreo. Well, we, uh, again, we thank you for spending some time with us to talk a little bit about uh, your experiences. I wanted to go back to Allison Frankel. Uh, again, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, we've been talking a- off a-, a lot about uh, municipalities that have these ordinances, but are there any in the state or across the country that are
4: models for cities and towns when they're thinking about ways to help the most vulnerable, Allison? Sure. Well, the easiest model is simply to stop enforcing and repeal laws that criminalize homelessness and turn those resources into providing housing for our most vulnerable residents. You know, it costs on average $87 a day to jail someone, but only $28 a day to provide them with shelter. So the best models that we've seen um, are states and areas that are turning away from criminalization. Uh, Rhode Island has been a big leader in starting its Homeless Persons Bill of Rights movement, um, and we're hoping that there's other reform there. And I think this is really a space where Connecticut actually can be a leader. Um, The state has worked to end veteran homelessness. It's working to end chronic homelessness. Um, We've started a second chance society. We're working on criminal justice reform. And we have to merge these two areas and say, in order to reform our criminal justice system and in order to house our most vulnerable residents, we need to repeal laws that criminalize homelessness. And passing the Homeless Persons Bill of Rights in New Haven is a really great way to start.
3: I want to thank Allison Frankel again, uh, one of the co-authors uh, of this study that we're going to link uh, at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. She's now appellate counsel of the Center for Appellate Litigation in New York City. Allison, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Also, thank you to Sade and Donnie, members of the Housing Not Jails Initiative of the Connecticut Bail Fund. Uh, Thank you both for joining us here today on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Today's uh, producer was Carmen Baskoff. If you appreciate the programs, the people that we speak with on our show each week, please support this show. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.